I was actually talking with a colleague a few days ago, and he basically said, I spent a year of my life wondering if I was going to die because I came to work today, which is terrifying. I came, went to work every day terrified that I was going to bring it home and kill someone. But now if you choose to get vaccinated and you are protected, it's, it's a much better feeling, but it's still out there. We still see it every single day. I still see it every single shift. And there are still people getting quite ill from it. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And we need to be putting a lot more attention on public health and public health measures and how to spot these things when they happen. The next one might not be airborne. It might be fomite-borne. Who knows what it'll be? But we need to be prepared for it. And so what's transformational is the knowledge that we have to be prepared for the next pandemic. The next time questions like this come up, we will have much better data to determine the risks and benefits of in-person school and the value of mitigation. The next pandemic is going to be a different virus. It might not be as airborne. It might not be as transmissible. It might be more. We don't know. But what we do know is we will have tons better data next time about what works and what doesn't work. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and today's COVID-19 roundtable is set against the backdrop of continued, mostly positive developments in Arizona. U.S. case rates have hit the lowest point since the pandemic began. Arizona case rates are lower, but stubbornly plateauing, while vaccination rates are consistently declining. The federal goal of 70% vaccination by the 4th of July has been reached in 12 U.S. states. Projections tend to show that Arizona will not join them. Meanwhile, data shows that unvaccinated Arizonans with no antibodies from previous infection face the same risk of new infection as ever. Of course, from a population health perspective, that group of Arizonans becomes smaller by the day. There's still a lot to process, a lot to learn from, and a lot to improve upon. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about the public health value of school closures, comparison of the current COVID impact to the typical flu season, the future of telehealth and telework, variants, vaccines, the worldwide pandemic context, and more as of June 7, 2021. As always, so grateful to have an incredible cast to work with us today, starting with from Valley Wise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, how's it going? Doing well, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Also from Arizona State University, Dr. Joshua LaBear. Josh, how's it going? Going great. Glad to be here. And ever so grateful also to have the man who started the whole roundtable with us, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how are you? I'm doing good. Josh, kick us off with the numbers. Where is the U.S. right now? Where does Arizona stand and where are we headed? Our numbers continue, generally speaking, in the United States to improve. I would say in Arizona, in terms of new cases, the seven-day trailing average has really not changed much. It's around 500. And Arizona in general, has one of the higher new case rates in the country. It's in the top five or six. So we could do better. We're in the bottom 10th of the country, which is not great, but certainly way better than we were in the winter months. So trickling in in terms of vaccines, I wish we were more robust there, but at least it hasn't fallen to zero. So let's hope that we can continue to encourage people to get vaccinated. That's the general summary. And then I know Will did some interesting back of the envelope calculations in terms of death rates. And I'll let him tell you that part. 
Yeah, I was trying to look for a frame of reference to explain where we are with the outcomes and deaths from COVID infections right now. And so I went back and I looked at the last five years where you know, state and county health departments track deaths from pneumonia and influenza. It's not reportable like COVID is, so they have to do some inferences to get that data. If you look at the last five years and look at the worst two or three weeks throughout the regular influenza season, we have about 20 to 25 adult deaths per week in that period of time. And with COVID right now, we're at least at 60, more close to 70 deaths per week. So if you want to compare it to influenza, COVID's three and a half times worse than influenza is at its worst every winter. It's a hard way of explaining it. What I'm trying to say is, yeah, the COVID stuff's gotten a lot better, but if we were having an influenza season right now and we were having 60 deaths a week, people would be saying, oh my goodness, look at what's going on with influenza. Instead, since it's COVID, everyone's like, ah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Everything's okay. It's not okay. <laughs> Yeah. And Kara, that's an interesting frame of reference, especially for somebody who is standing at the doors of an emergency room every day. I mean, does it feel like it's a bad flu right now? Does it feel like um, it's just a relief that it's not a crisis standards of care? I think the interesting, the comparison to a bad flu is actually pretty good in terms of numbers, but it's still there. We still see people die. We still admit people to the hospital. I've seen an increase in the younger population. I saw a teenager who had COVID in December and then had it again. So I feel like I see more of that, more of younger people. But the feeling in the emergency department is closer to pre-pandemic, but I think that's because we finally have a grasp on how to not get COVID. At the beginning, everyone's terrified that they're going to get COVID because we don't know how to deal with it and what's going to happen. But now, if you choose to get vaccinated, you are very well protected. And we have more experience with treating COVID, not that that's made it any better, not that we have lower death rates as a result, but at least you have a way of protecting yourself. I guess you could say there's some sense of control, more control at least, both personally and professionally. Yes, I was actually talking with a colleague a few days ago and he's older and has some risk factors. And he basically said, I spent a year of my life coming to work, wondering if I was going to die because I came to work today which is terrifying. I didn't feel that way because I'm younger, but I came, went to work every day terrified that I was going to bring it home and kill someone. But now if you choose to get vaccinated and you are protected, it, it's a much better feeling, but it's still out there. We still see it every single day. I still see it every single shift and there are still people getting quite ill from it. Can family members come in and visit like if they're not intubated or even if they are intubated, like how's that working these days? If you don't have COVID, families can come, can have one person at bedside, at least at Valley Wise. And I suspect most, a lot of places, everyone that gets admitted gets screened for COVID. So we do find incidentals, but that way you're not putting someone with a broken hip with COVID next to someone who doesn't have COVID. The fact that testing is much more available is easier. So if you don't have COVID at most places, you can have at least one visitor, but compared to previous where People could have multiple visitors and you could walk around freely in the hospital. There's still measures. As a visitor, you still have to get your temperature checked when you come in and answer if you've got COVID-like symptoms. Have you had bedside conversations with the family members? Their mom or dad or whatever is an inpatient, either ICU or general ward, and you're doing rounds and coming in and do they say, geez, I guess we should have gotten vaccinated or do they talk about that? So I don't do inpatient rounds, but I will tell you, that sometimes when we diagnose people with COVID, they have the same reaction that they did a year ago. 
oh my gosh, how did this happen? I can't believe this happened. And it boggles my mind. Like, how could, did you think this couldn't happen? I've not had someone say to me, wow, I probably should have got vaccinated, should have been vaccinated. How I do have ever had had family members that say, maybe I should go get vaccinated. And I'm like, it's a really good idea, but it's kind of late. <laughs> like, that's not going to protect you. But yes, you should go get vaccinated. I am impressed. I, I think I vacillate. I'm Sometimes I'm really impressed when people say, oh, yeah, I've, I've been vaccinated. And I'm equally unimpressed when people are like, no, no, I haven't been vaccinated. And they just, you know, shrug it off. So having said that again, I feel like a lot of the people that say they have been vaccinated are elderly and they know that they have risk factors and more of the people that have not been vaccinated are younger. There was an article last week that went something like this. You know that thing you're experiencing, the sore throat, the stuffed up nose, the, the mysterious illness that you have that's not COVID? It's called the cold. And that because people have finally taken masks off, we are now seeing a resurgence of other viruses that folks are catching. Are you seeing that as well? Yes, 100%. Because before, basically anyone that had cold-like symptoms, we assumed it was COVID. And now you have to have a negative COVID test before you're like, well, guess what? You just have a cold <laughs> or strep throat or plain old pneumonia. Is there anything to this theory that because people wore masks for quite some time now, in fact, we are more susceptible than we had been? I don't know about that, but it sure feels like it. it feels like, and maybe that's because we didn't see colds and various other things for so long, but I feel like they're more maybe last month. There are just a bunch of kids that came in with various febrile illnesses that ended up being non-COVID, but other things because now people are mingling and they're not necessarily wearing masks and they're not necessarily washing hands. And it's not like it was six months ago. It's like it was two years ago. So now we're just getting all the regular stuff. Yeah, my daughter was one of them. She got something. She was really tired. She had a little trouble breathing. We had her tested for COVID twice. We were sure that that was it, but not. And then another friend of mine whose daughter also got something. I think it's EBV. I think it's mono. <laughs> she's a teen. She's a mm -hmm. you know, young teen. So I don't know. But she was like laid out in bed for several days until she got better, but definitely not yeah. COVID. I guess people are still surprised. I can't, I'm just, yeah, yeah. people are still surprised when they get the test results that it's COVID. Not just our hospital, but other hospitals in the Valley are just very, very busy because on top of less COVID cases, people are all going back to all their regular stuff. We have all the traumas and all the other normal things and surgeries are back up and running. The hospital systems are just very, very busy. And on top of that, that we've talked about before, the workforce shortage. We're definitely feeling that now too. We've talked about this before. That we're still in a progression between variants and vaccinations. Josh, what's the state of things? In Arizona, we are largely dominant by, I guess it's now called Alpha, formerly known as B117, formerly known as the UK variant. Now it's called Alpha, and that is largely the dominant strain here. I will tell you, I've now seen recent data in serological studies and clinical studies that show that the vaccines do really well against pretty much all the variants, and that's really encouraging. Even though you can, in, in a lab-based test, you can see some decrease in response in the, the formerly 351 strain and the P1 strain. In terms of long-term response, in terms of communities that are dominant for those strains, 
you don't see anybody going to the hospital with vaccine against even those strains. And what's really nice is the T cell responses are outstanding for all strains, outstanding for all strains. So the vaccines are doing a pretty darn good job at all the known strains right now. And so I think we should, once again, good reason to go get vaccinated. Josh, I'm glad you brought up those T cells who get no attention. They right. do so much work and they yeah. never get anybody to talk about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. What would you like to say about T cells, Will? You've met people that you've worked with people who they're the workhorses of the organization and they just keep quiet and they produce great reports and they're super professional. And then you ask them to get out in the limelight and they won't want to do it. And that's what the T cells are. Right. They're well, like, they're the part of your immune system that is the longest last. I look at them as like the specialists. They're the detectives. They're always there. They're really smart. They do great work. They don't slack off, but they don't get the attention that they deserve. It's easier to measure the antibodies. They're, they're pretty easy to measure. But the job of the antibodies in most cases is like on the schoolyard when someone puts a sticker on your back that says, kick me. And then when all the T cells see the sign that says, kick me, they go around and kick the people wearing the, the sticker, except in this case, it says, kill me. So the antibodies identify the cells that are affected. And then the T cells come in and kill them. I did a blog post about it, trying to explain the difference. And what I said was the antibodies are like the EMS. It's like calling 911 and EMS comes out. They do stabilization and resuscitation, but they don't really do treatment and cure, but they'll transport you to the hospital. And that's where the T cells, the longer term immune response that ends up turning the tide. But the antibodies did a good job kind of stabilizing. Things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I got to say, Josh, Will's metaphor was a lot nicer than your kick me, kill me <laughs> metaphor. That was that one turned dark in a hurry. Jeez. So here we are. We're making progress. But as you've already mentioned, Josh, you called us the bottom 10% of rate of new infections, which really makes us like number five or number six in the actual number of infections. And then we have our variants and we have a fall off in vaccination rates that seems to continue. Will, is the right work being done to be more creative, to be more close to the communities that need more vaccinations? Are we headed in the right direction on the vaccination side when we can't really control the variant side? What I'll say is it's just important not to give up. We're not doing very well. It's trailing off. We're doing about 10,000 vaccines. Some weekends there's 15,000, but that's not very many considering we were at 75,000 in early March and April per day. It's really trailed off a lot, but it's important not to give up. Some of the county health departments are really doing some creative stuff, especially Pima County. Maybe that's because I follow them on Twitter and I see what they're doing, but they have a Vax After Dark thing down on 4th Street down in Tucson. They have pop-up events. They still have the FEMA mobile units going around down there. They're being really creative. I know Maricopa County is too. You just have to keep being creative and try to make it as spontaneous as you can. One area that I think is ripe for improvement is to simplify the ordering process for doctor's offices so that makes it easier for them to onboard and get the vaccine. And especially for the Pfizer so that they can order less than a thousand doses when they do order. It's just the onboarding process is a lot harder with this. 
than it would be for a normal vaccine in a doctor's office. And so for that reason, not that many doctors are onboarded. We could do a better job with that. And that's going to help over the long run. It's not like you get a big bolus of new vaccines happening when it's in doctor's offices. But as people come in for appointments, it's a way of getting vaccine from now till the end of the year on a slower scale. And there are demographic groups, in particular men who are behind, men under 30 who are behind. And I don't know exactly how to motivate people like that. I don't think PSAs and stuff are the way to do it. It's funny you should mention that because uh, Arizona Department of Health Services has ads starring Dr. Kara Christ saying the vaccine is out there. You can find it everywhere. You don't need an appointment. Come on in and get one. Now, all advertising is designed to simplify the challenges. Is that truth in advertising when the department says it's everywhere and come on and get one? It's easy. Well, yeah, but the question is the focus groups tell you that that's an effective ad. What we used to do is with tobacco cessation, like try to get kids to not start smoking and then for adults to get to quit smoking, we always had focus groups where we tested our ads first so that you know that you're doing something that has been proven to work. But if you're just going to go out and say, well, this is the cheapest, easiest ways to get our director out and do a 30-second spot, and if you don't test it with the groups, then you're just putting your name on and your face on TV. You're not getting that demographic group vaccinated, even though there's untold amounts of federal dollars in place, which is true. You shouldn't waste it. You should focus your ads on something that's been tested, I think. We are coming up on the current federal administration's goal of being 70% vaccinated by July 4th. Projections show from multiple sources that Arizona will not hit that goal. Kara, how do you feel about that? And what do you think we should be doing to try and meet it? It makes me sad. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think that vaccinations can make things go so much better for everybody. What do we need to do? I, I think similar to what we've talked about before, go to where people are. And I think hitting the heart of the matter, finding the groups of people, the people, the men under 30, the disparities, go where people need us to go. And at some point, we need to start addressing people who are hesitant and who still may not have crossed over. Josh, we're not going to meet our goal. How do you feel about it? What should we do about it? You were the guy who wanted to have graduation party for your class as long as your students were vaccinated. How'd that go? It went well. So all the students did get vaccinated. So that was really encouraging to me. I mean, partly because many of my students were graduate students. And since they're teachers, they counted as essential personnel and they got vaccinated early. But by the time our party happened, it had been opened up to everybody anyway, and they're all old enough. So that was good. I think everybody enjoyed that. Obviously, I would love to see us do better. I think one thing we ought to be doing now is repeating the Ciro survey that we did last fall just to see what is the prevalence of immunity in our community. I think one question that we have, several of us have tried to do this, another back of the envelope calculation, which is you have X number of people fully vaccinated, and then you have Y number of people who've been infected. There's obviously some overlap there, but if you can figure out you know, the total number of people who are responsive, how good is that? Arizona got hit hard with the infection. So there are a number of people out there with natural immunity. Now that's not as good, I think, as vaccine immunity. I think the data are showing now that you get some response from being infected, but you get a much better response from being vaccinated. So I think a serial survey would do two things. One, 
it would give us a sense of, of how close we are to overall immunity in the community. But secondly, it would also perhaps identify those demographics that are not yet immune and then help us understand whom we need to target. Because the whole thing about testing our publicity campaign is knowing who our audience is. There's no point, I think, in trying to pitch this to these scientifically savvy people because they got vaccinated the minute it was available. It's the other people that we need to figure out who they are and why they're hesitant. And so we can go address them. Well, how about you? We're not going to meet this 70% goal vaccination-wise. Josh just brought up a great point, though, about what is the overall community immunity given infections. And yet, also, people who have been infected are being highly encouraged, if not recommended, to get vaccinations. So what do we think? Where are we? How do we feel? And what do we do about it? Honestly, I think the 70% thing by 4th of July is just a goal that the president came up with, and it was a good goal. You should try to achieve goals. But really, ultimately, what we're really after our performance measure is to get a steady decline in cases like the seven-day trailing average that you see on the Biodesign website. If we could get a, over a 21-day period, a steady decline in cases down to like we're at 100, 150 cases a day or something like that, to me, ultimately, that's and there's basically no mitigation. I mean, look, the Phoenix Suns are in the playoffs and the place is 100% full and very few people have any kind of masking going on. They're making some people in the front row that pay $2,500 a seat. <laughs> they have to wear a mask, but no one else is wearing masks. There's no mitigation going on. And so if we can just get a steady decline in cases, then I think we can say and, and keep up the effort on especially the harder to reach populations. I think then that'd be the time for the governor to say, this is no longer a public health emergency. Stop all the extra work that the hospitals have to do on reporting and things like that. I think that's probably something by the end of the summer that we'll have. I thought it would be in July that we'd have a steady decline in cases in the absence of mitigation, which is the definition of herd immunity, really. But 10,000 vaccines a day, I don't think we're going to get there. But I do wonder, Josh, you were mentioning a serial survey. Has anyone gone to like United Blood Services and said, have you been testing everything? Are you testing for antibodies? I know it's a biased sample, but at least you'd get people who are already presenting to give blood. And then you test that and it gives you a sense of where you might be. But it is a biased sample compared I to think a it's random a, I think the problem is that survey. it's a biased sample because I'll bet that before you give blood, they ask you to test for COVID. I'll bet they do that. I think but, at some point people were going to give blood to find out if they had COVID-19 really? antibodies. Yeah. I mean, not obviously not very widely, yeah. but at some yeah. point they said, if you donate blood, we'll let you know. I, I do Back remember when that. testing was so bad. Yeah, and the turnaround time, just, like at UBS, the turnaround time was great. Remember that we had a period where the turnaround time was two weeks. Oh, yeah. PCR test. Remember that? Well, it has been 11 years since the Suns were in the playoffs. And and we did beat the Los Angeles Lakers in the first round. So that's about as intoxicating as any three or four alcoholic drinks. OK, so people are going to let loose a little bit. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Kara, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say something similar, though, but going to the grocery store, I still wear my mask and I want to like, right, I'm vaccinated. Are you? Because if you do the numbers, so say 40% vaccinated and maybe we'll give another 10%, I don't know, for natural immunity. That means half the people in the grocery store should be um, wearing their masks and they're not, at least in my experience. Let's talk vaccinations by zip code. We are still 
in a very challenging situation when it comes to successful, equitable administration of vaccines. Right. What stone is left unturned that needs to be turned in order to improve that situation? Josh? I think we need to understand who's getting vaccinated and who's not getting vaccinated and, and then figure out how do we convince them. I suspect, we know from just having worked with AZDHS, they are trying to get vaccine out to everywhere. I think it matters a lot to them to do that. So I think the question is, are those people out there more reluctant? Are they hesitant? Do they object flat out? I mean, we know that politically speaking, there's definitely some folks who want nothing to do with vaccination. And so the question is, who are those folks and what can we do to convince them to go get it? I think part of it is that two or three, or especially four months ago, there was a sense of urgency about things. The hospitals were still full. I mean, it was still scary. And now because the cases are so low, it's just not as scary as it was. And the scare factor is a motivating part of getting people in to get the vaccine. So I think part of it is there's a perception that the risks are a lot lower now. And so therefore, there's not a sense of urgency about it. And that is tipping people towards not seeking it or not getting it. Not that they're hesitant, but they're just not motivated anymore. Not in a hurry. Yeah. In fact, they weren't motivated at all, and now they're less motivated. Kara, does that mean, based on what Will just said, that we should up the scare factor again? I mean, I don't know if it's going to work, but... It didn't work the first time, so why would yeah, it Yeah, it didn't really work. Yeah, it's true. It didn't work the first time. I don't know if it's going to work around the second time. But if you look at the numbers, I, I don't know what Arizona numbers are, but I know there was an article that you looked at the Washington state numbers, and the unvaccinated seniors were 11 times more likely than vaccinated seniors to need to go into the hospital for COVID. And even for people that were 45 to 64, their chance of hospitalization unvaccinated was 18 times that of vaccinated people. So the risk is still out there. And now that there are people vaccinated, it's becoming much more the people that are going to require hospitalization and further care are people who are unvaccinated. So it's kind of a matter of how you look at it. And, And yeah, I think that the pressure is off and people don't feel as scared, but it's still out there. Scare tactics didn't work the first time. I don't think it's going to work the second time. I don't know what will. Two weeks ago, Will, on this podcast, you wished that somebody would study whether or not closing schools was a good idea. Your wish came true. I haven't read it. Josh sent me the link uh, right. for the study. I haven't seen it yet, so he's a better one to talk about it. This is a large survey-based study, I think hundreds of thousands of respondents all across the nation. They basically were asking the question, was there or was there not an increased likelihood of family infections in families that had a child going to an in-person school? And what they found was that definitely from age 6 to 12 in particular, They saw an increase in infections in families that went to schools, but that that was primarily in schools that did not have protection measures in place. And that the more protection measures in place that happened, like student masking, teacher masking, restricted entry to the schools, allowing extra space between students, that by the time you got to like four or five of those mitigation factors, that problem went away. So in-person schooling did offer an opportunity for spread of illness but that you could prevent that by putting in mitigation factors, the same mitigation factors we've talked about all the time. 
It was pretty rigorously done. I would say, of course, impossible to do this the perfect way, which would be to monitor the schools and actually all that stuff. But the flip side of this is that they looked at a, a massive online survey. So they really looked at a lot of people. A lot of the, the troubles that might occur get washed out when you have numbers that large. Will, it's really easy to point to the results that Josh just read off and say, see, we shouldn't have closed schools on the one hand. On the other hand, other folks are going to say, you know what, the whole reason we were closing schools was to make sure that kids were at a distance from each other. So when you take those four or five different ingredients, you actually achieve that in the school setting. So who's right and what do we do in the future? Yeah, I'm really pleased to see this study. I'm going to read it and, and put it in my policy update next week. And there will be more. There's going to be more studies because this is a really important public policy question. So there's going to be more studies. And I think that by the next time questions like this come up, that we will have much better data to determine the risks and benefits of in-person school and the value of mitigation. The next pandemic is going to be a different virus. It might not be as airborne. It might not be as transmissible. It might be more. We don't know. But what we do know is we will have tons better data next time about what works and what doesn't work. The return on sacrifice that we talked about two weeks ago for closing schools versus the return on closing nightclubs and bars during the peak. And look at the relative difference in terms of the effectiveness of those two kinds of interventions. And we have some decent data to suggest that the bars and the nightclubs, those closed indoor environments with alcohol, were far better amplifiers of this virus than things like schools. It gives policymakers more evidence to make better choices next time. And someone pointed out maybe last week that the previous studies were based on influenza, and that's much more transmittable and dangerous to children, whereas this virus was much more dangerous to adults. So if it's more dangerous to children, then the mitigation efforts at school are that much more important. And if we hadn't closed schools, who knows what would have come home. So it's not necessarily the children that got sick, but the families. Yeah. Well, and in fact, this, this study did look at a lot, looked at what happened in the families. Were there people in the family who ended up getting COVID, presumably from the child? Mm-hmm. One thing that we don't have any data on because we didn't do the genome sequencing on a regular basis is any notion of what asymptomatic spread actually looked like. Is that sort of just lost to the past and we'll never know? And does it matter? I mean, we know that people were at their peak of infectivity a couple of days before symptoms occurred. At that point, they were presumably spreading virus by talking. It's conversation that was the problem because you produce 2,600 droplets of saliva per second in the air when you talk. That's a lot of droplets of saliva. You're surrounded by a cloud of your own saliva when you're talking. And so I think that's where transmission was occurring. I think the question I was trying to ask was this notion of we were always at least two weeks behind. And so we never really knew actually how it was spreading from person to person in the United States and whether or not there were some people who were purely asymptomatic carriers who never developed any symptoms whatsoever, who ended up being those super spreaders. And we don't know who they were or how they behaved or what happened to actually create the outbreaks that we saw, say, in New York. Right, right. We don't, yeah. There were some studies early on where they did very careful documentation of spread by people who were asymptomatic. And they, they could document it because they know who got COVID 
and then they could trace them back to the index case. So in those cases, we're talking about tens of people, not hundreds or thousands. They could document it, and those people were asymptomatic. And so we do know it happened. But you're right. In the bigger picture, we don't know what was really happening out there. There's just no tracking all that. We're hopeful. I mean, those of us who did testing got lots of anecdotal evidence for people who wrote back to us and said, thank you. I didn't know I was sick. My test was positive and now I'm quarantining. Hopefully I'm not spreading kind of thing. So we, you know, but that's not statistical. That's anecdotal, but we're hopeful that that sort of thing happened and prevented spread. We still have asymptomatic spread. We screen every patient that gets admitted, as I said, and we have people that test positive that have no symptoms still out there. Oh yeah. Had a whole baseball team that was doing that. That's right. That's right. Or half a baseball team. (laughs) And I got to tell you, one of the things that was shocking to us, ASU had a program in place where we screened a fraction of our students and our staff for that matter, all the time. And we would get all of these students who were completely asymptomatic and coming back with viral loads that just made, made your eyes pop. I mean, there was just, they were just, just dripping in virus based on the numbers and yet didn't feel a thing. And so you got to know that those people at a party or a sports event or something like that, anyone near them, if they're cheering, if they're singing, they're going to get it. Makes you never want to talk to someone without a mask on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I don't know. (laughs) I know. Are you guys ready for the Whopper question this week? It is a big one. It is a really big one. So take your time with it. Okay, we're heading somewhere towards the end of this pandemic, hopefully. And the debates have begun. Wait, wait, wait. In the U.S. You have to say that. You have to say that every time. That's good. Yeah. Although the numbers are getting better in India now, finally. I don't know about South America yet. But it's getting worse in Vietnam. It's just it's gonna keep going yeah, gonna, back and forth yes, it and is everywhere around. until we can get Covax funded and supply chains straightened out and get let people get vaccinated. Sorry to hijack you. I don't want to hijack either. But what do you think about the variant that they found in Vietnam? Is this just something that's just gonna keep happening where they just find variants and we just see if the vaccine works and we just kind of move on until the world is effectively vaccinated? Yes, I think so. Variants occur in places where there's a higher viral load. Mm -hmm. What drives variants is just lots of virus. The more viruses around, sooner or later, mistakes are going to occur in the reproduction of the viral genome, and you're going to get these new variants. Then on occasion, some of those variants are going to do better in terms of transmission and all that stuff. As we mentioned earlier today, so far at least, all of these variants seem to respond to the vaccine. So... Let's knock on wood and let's hope that trend continues. And more importantly, let's try to get the viral load down on the planet so that we just don't see any more variants occurring. Are you guys done with your work avoidance? (laughs) Here comes comes the Whopper question. As the U.S. heads to a point where we might be leaving our health emergency, there seem to be three camps now. Back to normal, the new normal, and boy, we found out a lot. We need to transform a bunch of things. Given those three categories, what are your highest wishes for each when it comes to the health and well-being of Arizonans? What's your thing that you hope will most get back to normal? What's the thing that you think is going to be a new normal forever? And what are the things that absolutely need to be transformed based on what we saw during this pandemic? 
These are wishes, right? Yes. Those are really hard questions. First of all, I don't think there is such a thing as back to normal. There's going to be new normal, but this thing changed so many parts of the way people think in society. And I don't think there is a back to normal, but there will be a new normal. People make their individual choices, which end up becoming the new collective choice and the way people behave and what they do. One thing we really learned is that if people wear face coverings during the cold and flu season, we can really make a big, big, big difference. And if people get vaccinated for one thing for influenza, and then on the top of that, just continue to wear masks in crowded public places. I'm not talking about mitigation like bars and things like that, but I think there's going to be a fair number of people that will keep wearing masks. Because before people didn't do it because it made you like people got to think you're on chemo or something, you know, and now it won't be weird anymore. Right. I mean, it was, it was already not weird in Asia. If you traveled in Asia at all, it was not at all uncommon to see people walking around with masks on, presumably because they were sick or whatnot. But Americans always felt that this was just not something they could ever tolerate. And I agree with you. I think that is the new normal. I think it has become acceptable in America to wear masks. And I think you're going to see that people do it much more routinely all the time. Maybe not everybody, but certainly people who are concerned or who may be ill or whatnot. And so the other answer to the question you asked is, I think telehealth is with us to stay now for good. There were Medicaid programs and others that were very resistant to telehealth because of the afraid of fraud. Because this pandemic made telehealth so essential, I think that it is here to stay. And another thing that I think is going to be a new normal, all the stuff we used to do to get people to carpool, remember? (laughs) That's here to stay. Zoom meetings and Zoom board meetings are going to take cars off the road and allow people to live in places that they could never have done before because of the nature of how work expected you to be present. So I think you're going to see a continued migration to exurban outside the urban areas and stuff. I think it's going to change businesses and transportation and the expectation for what needs to be in person and what doesn't. So there's going to be things like that besides just the mask part of it. Those are really good. So Kara, you're doing the, you're doing the plus one. You got to do a plus one. And so, well, I don't know that I have a plus one for the new normal. I have one for the normal as a mom. I wish schools could go back to a little bit more the way they were. And I hope that one day they can because kids playing on the playground, one ball each can't interact. (laughs) can't talk at lunch. My kid is going to be a first grader. She doesn't know anything different, but I wish schools could go back to normal. Transformational change, I think we'll all agree, is just the public health system in general, like the lack of funding, the preparedness on a local, state, national level. And also we saw how people can be resilient, how we had to stay home and learn new hobbies, and how we can, even though the United States is based on individualism, we can come together and rally together and protect each other. Josh, how about you? So back to normal, certainly the thing I'm voting for, of course, is just getting people together in meetings again, face-to-face interactions, a work environment where people actually come back together again. It's fine to have a Zoom meeting, but in real work meetings, people often are checking their email during Zoom meetings. They're just a lot more present. They're in the room together. So would love to see that happen. I think we covered the new normal pretty well. I think telehealth, teleworking, all those things certainly will enable us to interact more. 
globally that way. Transformational, the public health thing is what I would come down on. I think if you read Yuval Nora Harari and you look at the success of the human, the homo sapiens, and how many of us are now marching around this planet. And then you consider the fact that people are continuing to migrate into cities a lot. So they are just much more crowded. I mean, you've got cities like Beijing and Shanghai that have what? 30 million people in just one city. That's bigger than many countries. That's just a city. The chance for another one of these is really high. It's going to happen again. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And we need to be putting a lot more attention on public health and public health measures and how to spot these things when they happen. The next one might not be airborne. It might be fomite born. Who knows what it'll be, but we need to be prepared for it. And so what's transformational is the knowledge that we have to be prepared for the next pandemic. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Kara. And thank you, Will. Here's to all of us, as Josh just said, continuing to reflect, analyze, and learn from this pandemic. Given our history of outbreaks like H1N1, the first SARS virus, and now COVID-19, we owe it to ourselves to pull the facts together, pull analyses together, and to ultimately pull our systems and our policies together so that next time can be different. So that next time we can do more to prevent so many losses, so much hardship, and so much discord. As we said last time, COVID is teaching us that strengths can be weaknesses and weaknesses can become strengths. Upended lives is a phrase that sounds pretty bad until we get to the work of reimagining and maybe even discover something new and better. Nothing can equal the losses and sacrifices, but it is incumbent upon us to do something good to honor them. One thing we can share with you about this podcast, you have just experienced the last of our bi-weekly forays into the pandemic. Since March of 2020, we've been in your ears twice a month to talk about COVID. That's 33 COVID roundtable episodes. Many of you have repeatedly expressed how valuable those discussions were, but the time has come to turn our attention more broadly. Without question, the roundtable will reconvene in the future, but most likely on something like a once a month basis or over a longer stretch of time. The Vitalist Spark, after all, is focused on news we can use and insights that we need to improve community health and well-being. We've been working hard to share the stories and insights regarding multiple aspects of community health and well-being, which means you can check out our back catalog of episodes focused on redistricting, the opioid crisis, affordable housing, food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and open spaces, and more. There is a lot to listen to, featuring guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to The Vitalist Spark, just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.